Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty, of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider of the horse. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, 
which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation chapters 19 and 20. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Well, hello, my name is Elijah Daly. I get to be one of the ministers here on staff. If you're new here with us, you're probably like, what are we talking about? (laughs) But if you have been with us, you know, we've been in the book of Revelation. It's a powerful and sometimes confusing prophecy but it's one that we are blessed when we get to hear it read over us. And it's another that we're blessed when we get to truly embody it. And so our goal throughout this whole series is that we would begin to understand it, to understand what this book is saying, what it's showing. It shows us the power, the majesty, the sacrifice, the love, the justice of God. It shows us Jesus. And so over the last several weeks, we hope that you have gained a clearer picture of who Jesus is. That he knows, he is, he warns, he conquers, he judges, he calls us out. And today, that he wins. You see, that's what we walk into when we get to chapter 19. We've poked our head into another worship service and we see the angels and saints glorifying God with a song. And it's very appropriate for Revelation because John loves to sing. And they are, there are songs that are being sung all over the place in this book It makes sense. John loves images. He loves symbols. That's what we've been saying, right? That numbers shouldn't be measured. They should be weighed. The point is revelation is a whole lot more like a song than a novel. And John keeps coming back over and over and over again to that chorus. He wins. And this is where we're at in chapter 19. Listen to what it says. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again, they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Now, if you remember, Mark talked about last week who this prostitute is. It's Babylon, it's empire, it's a city that represents the world. It's a house for the enemies of God. It's a woman whose sole purpose is to entice people away from God. Now, I hope that many of you have had a good spring break. I know that I have. I got to, we got to send our two sons off to our in-laws and experience just a taste of freedom, baby, and it was awesome. And uh, I, got to, I started reading through the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time, and uh, I have loved them. They are awesome. And some of you guys are like, the first time, seriously, those are like, you know, 70 years old. Well, yes, and they are awesome. And if you have read them, you know, there's a boy, Edmund, and Edmund comes upon the evil witch, the queen of Narnia, and he is afraid. (laughs) So afraid that he can't move, he can't speak. And the queen starts speaking harshly with him, trying to get him to come with her to her castle. But he can't do anything but stand there until she offers him some Turkish delight. She gives him some and he eats and... blown away, so good, so incredible. And what happens is she says, I tell you what, if you can get your brother and your sisters to come to the castle, 
I won't just give you more of it. I will make you king of Narnia. And Edmund is all in now. He's like, why do we even need that? Let's just go. I'm ready right now. We'll go to your kingdom. It'll be great. We'll eat more Turkish delight and we'll all have a great time. Well, it's amazing, isn't it? One bite of Turkish delight, he would have given up his whole soul. But that's how it goes. You see, it's pleasure that makes us forget the things which we should fear, that which is dangerous. And you see, in chapter 19, when the, all of that shallow, imitated, cheap pleasure is destroyed with the prostitute, it's gone forever. And all of heaven rejoices because the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And you know what that means? She isn't getting back up. Hallelujah. Praise our God, all you, his servants who fear him, small and great, because he wins. And our text is going to show us a feast of victory, a battle of victory, and the life of victory. So let's look at the feast of victory. It starts in verse 6, if you want to turn there in your Bibles, chapter 19. It says this, Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. You see, we're told in chapter 21 who this bride is. It's the true holy city. It's the city of God. It's the church. And this feast that is happening, it's not an ordinary feast. It's a marriage feast for a ceremony that has been planned for a long time now. Talk about long engagements. But God was not interested in having a ceremony with a bride that was still dancing with a whore. And it's funny, I have had a lot of conversations recently with people who are afraid, they're nervous, they're stressed, they're frustrated because they feel as though our culture is on a path toward destruction, that it's abandoning all sense of goodness. But we shouldn't be. You see, this is who the prostitute always was. The mask is being ripped off and our eyes are seeing that she never loved God ever. This is the city of the world, not of God. And we've been far too attracted to a city that looks nothing like the one God is making for us. And when it is destroyed, when the prostitute is gone, the distinctions of the bride will become even more evident. You see, they begin to be fleshed out already. The prostitute is dressed in this gaudy apparel, intimacy with her, it's transactional, it's never satisfied and it's distorted. But the bride, she's beautiful, bright, pure. And there's a purity about her that is fully realized in intimacy with her. It's beautiful, it's real, it's exclusive, it's enough. You see, when the prostitute is out of the picture, the bride becomes what God always imagined it to be. And John qualifies here what makes us so appealing. He says, our gown is the collective outpouring of the deeds of the saints. You know what that means? Every moment of our compassion, every sacrifice of our love, all the endurance of faith in suffering woven together to attract a holy God. And we come and we sit at his table 
And we have the feast that we've been rehearsing every single week since we made that good confession, but it's not styrofoam and juice anymore, amen? But even if it was, it would satisfy every appetite. And so at the outpouring of our joy and for the glory of his victory, we sing hallelujah. For the Lord, our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory because he wins. And John will turn his attention now from a feast to the battle, to the battle of victory. It starts here in uh, verse 11, and I'll skip around a bit, but you can follow along. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The scene changes pretty suddenly, but it's pretty clear what's happening. It appears as though that a battle is beginning. The kingdom of God is assembling. They're marching toward the enemy. And John here describes the heavens open. That should sound familiar. It's what John described in chapter four when he was taken up into heaven. But now the king is coming out. And there is no question who this king is. He's faithful and true. He's a judge and commander acting in righteousness. And he has a sword coming from his mouth, which is really just to show us that every syllable he utters not only has the power to create truth, but to reveal everything. And it's clear that our clothes, it won't be our clothes that identify whether we are in God's kingdom, but our hearts. And Jesus will come and he'll expose everything Everything will be laid bare. And only then will we get jerseys white and pure. And Jesus goes and he marches toward the enemy and then it's over. It doesn't last very long. Maybe this isn't the beginning after all. It actually seems a whole lot more like the end, like the climax. Listen to what it says in verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, generals, and the mighty of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured and with it the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Man, a graphic image. But you can see the picture, right? Jesus shows up and it's over. You know, the last two years, we've been, our family's been starting to get into sports with our sons, which really is just soccer. And uh, I don't know if you've ever seen four-year-olds play soccer, but it's like, it's not really soccer, right? It's like herding cats. Like they're just hovering around the ball. They're just trying to touch it. And like the goal is like, if they can even make contact, it doesn't even have to go in the right direction. If they can just make contact, we're gonna get ice cream. You know, like that's how, this the goal. And that's true for pretty much everyone on the team, except for one person, Toby. Now, I don't know if they checked this kid's birth certificate, but he knew exactly what he was doing. He would get on the field, he'd get to the ball, he'd drive it down, he'd score a goal. And so we had two rules, have fun. 
and pass the ball to Toby. (laughs) It's good to have a Toby on your team, isn't it? You see, the truth is when Jesus shows up, it takes really no time at all for the whole battle to end. The angel is called. It calls the birds to eat. The beast, the false prophet, they're plucked up, they're thrown into the lake of fire, and it's over. All pretense of what this battle was supposed to be is immediately ended by Jesus. Now, I don't want you to miss this. Notice there's two two points of contrasting um, images that we're seeing here. You see, one was between the prostitute and the bride. Now we're seeing two feasts, one that celebrated our union with God, the other separating it forever. You see, when Jesus comes, all of those distinctions between the true holy city and the prostitute, they will be fully realized and he will leave nothing undone. And he's already started. Did you notice in verse 13, his, his robe, it already has blood on it. You see, he's already been fighting and this is just the end. Problem is, where's Satan at? Right, if this is the end of the battle, why isn't Satan mentioned? Well, I think this is why John switches gears in chapter 20. He's showing us where Satan has been up until, up until this point. Listen to what he says in verse one. And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. You see, John is pulling us back and reminding us that when Jesus came, when Jesus started to walk on this earth, when he died and was resurrected, that the kingdom of God had already become to be established, that Jesus would go throughout his ministry saying, repent for the kingdom of God is here. He's saying, if by the spirit of God, I'm driving out demons, you will know that the kingdom of God is here, that the strong man is bound. And through his death and resurrection, he has taken Satan's weapons away. Death has lost its power. Sin has lost its sting. And the reality of what God God of what Jesus did through his ministry was bind that strong man once more. You see, it's already been taking place. And because of that, the very weapons Satan was using to destroy God's people have become the very tools God uses to make them grow. One commentator put it like this, that Satan, he's like a dog on a chain. He's in the backyard. You can hear him yap and growl, but he's not getting to the roses. Because in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, there was a turning point in all of history, and the whole world has been responding ever since. The gospel's been making its way over the entire globe. Now, notice, too, that this text shows us a resurrection. The saints are in heaven. They're with Christ. You see, when Satan was bound, all of the souls that had called Christ king are now with him. 
They're awaiting now this final battle that we're talking about. They're awaiting that moment because as soon as that's done, the whole world will be renewed. Body and soul will come together. Now, I know I've shared several stories um, about my grandma over the last several years that I've been here. And so you probably heard me talk about her before, but we were close. We lived together um, for a little while. I lived with her when I was in college to take care of her as her health began to decline. And last year, 2020, the beginning of that year, before the pandemic even had started, we had that bittersweet moment that we had to say goodbye, but she got to go and be with Jesus. And I don't want you to miss this crucial point. You see, John is saying that because of what Christ did on the cross and through his resurrection, every person who calls Christ king will be reigning with him. They die physically, but their souls experience a resurrection and they are with him forever. And yet we are all, both heaven and earth, longing for this moment where body and soul are reunited and we enjoy life together with everyone again. So where has Satan been? Bound and defeated, only to be released for this final battle and his final end. Listen to what it says in verse seven as it jumps back into the battle. When a thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. You see, when Jesus shows up, he will bring with him all of his saints. They will march toward the enemy. The enemy will surround them and the enemy will be completely demolished. Hardly a war at all. Because when Jesus shows up, so does a life of victory. A life of victory that's not just waiting for for future potential fulfillment, but it's starting to be realized right now. So let's look at this life of victory. It says in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Two women, two feasts, two lives. One spent an eternal pleasure with God and the other separated forever. This is the great white throne. God's judgment is commencing. And we notice there's a bodily resurrection here. It's describing that bodily resurrection. And it's not just for saints, it's for sinners. It's for every single person. Every single person will be resurrected. They will come before the throne and the books will come out. And these books contain the deeds of every single person and God will use them to judge. They will be the evidence against us and every single one of us will be disqualified. But then the book of life will come. You see, the book of life will come and in this name are those written who have put their faith and their trust in King Jesus. 
And when this happens, no fear remains for us about what those other books say because there was only one good deed that allowed our names to be written in the book of life and we didn't do it. God did. You see, our names are written in that book when we have faith. Our names are written in that book and his name is written on our hearts. And the rest are judged according to what they have done. And it's clear. I mean, it's not the amount of good or bad things that you do that earn your spot in the kingdom. It's about whether your name is in the book of life and anyone's name not in there is consigned to the lake of fire with death and Hades. And I'll just be honest with you, this is hard. (laughs) I struggle with this, I wrestle with this. Like I get the prostitute, I get the beast, I get the false prophet, I get Satan, but people too? Like the lake of fire forever? But I'll just be honest with you. I find that every time I come to scripture, I come to God's word and I find something that makes me uncomfortable, it is almost always because I don't take sin seriously. This is what Tim Keller points out when he talks about the priest and the Ark of the Covenant. Remember that story? It's in 2 Samuel 6. What happens is David has just won this great military victory and they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant on a cart which went against protocol to the city of Jerusalem and that cart hits a bump and that that priest goes to to catch the Ark to, to make it steady and as soon as he touches it, God strikes him dead immediately. And you're like, man, really? This guy was just trying to help? It's an important object. We start to question the justice of God. But the truth is, it's because we don't take sin seriously. God is just, God is holy. He can't shrug off sin. See, the priest forgot himself. He forgot that it was holy. He forgot that he was carrying it incorrectly. He forgot of the sin that perpetually taints his heart. And he thought it would be better for that ark to touch a man like him than the ground it was falling towards. Sin is serious. It it perverts, it distorts, it destroys. It's why God had to flood the entire earth. It's why plagues came upon Egypt and the firstborn had to die. It's why Leviticus gives us a detailed procedure of how to massacre an animal that every rule, every drop of blood, every grotesque smell would remind us that sin is serious. It's why whole civilizations were overthrown. It's why God had to leave his people. It's why Revelation speaks of seals and bulls and trumpets and plagues because we have to take sin seriously. It perverts, it distorts, it destroys everything. It's why God had to send his son that he might intercept that wrath. He might intercept that destruction upon himself. Do you know why? We get to sing that song, hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because Jesus on the cross sang that Psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know why we get to wear a robe of pure linen? Because Jesus was stripped of his. You see, in the cross, every single deed written in those books that should have damned us, damned him. And the righteousness that he lived and embodied now cover us, robe us, change us. 
And all of God's aggression in Revelation is simply not to punish people, but to get them to wake up and see that salvation and saving is possible, that repentance is possible, that even now the victory of God would break in, that the weapons of Satan would become the tools of God, that we would celebrate a life of victory. And don't forget, you see, a life of victory is not just that we will experience eternal life and resurrection. It is that we will be with that King Jesus once more singing, holy, 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 that we will join that parade, that, that final battle ends and celebrate with a victorious God. And we will see a King no longer naked, but robed, no longer mounted on a cross, but a stallion. And the banner that will identify who he is will not be a sarcastic sign that reads King of the Jews. Every eye will see, every knee will bow. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord of Lords. And his resurrection, his victory, it leads to ours. And he invites us to sing a chorus that the angels and saints have already started. He wins. And before I leave today, I need you to know whether you are in this room for the first time and Jesus isn't king, whether you have been in this room for a while now, but Jesus isn't king, whether you have simply fallen away from what it really means to even call Jesus king, I need you to know the book is not closed. The table is not full. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is salvation. And it's what's been being, been being declared, proclaimed, since God won through Christ's death and resurrection. And he's inviting you into it to sing this song once more. And it has nothing to do with how good of a singer you are. And it has nothing to do with how good of a person you are. It has everything to do with how willing you are to trust the only one who is. And so we join that chorus once more as people who recognize we have no business being at this table. We have no business being in that book. But our King Jesus allows us a place so that we may sing this in all true authenticity. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For true and just are his judgments. Today, let's respond to him. Sing to a God whose invitation still stands to call him king. Would you stand and sing? Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.